1: best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you
0: are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 108 of the Talking Golf History podcast, and the first of several episodes on the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. Ben Hogan devised an exit out of competitive golf different than that of his rival, Byron Nelson. Rather than retiring to a ranch, the relentless work ethic and perfectionism of Ben Hogan would be focused on the instruments that literally connect us to this game. After several years of promises, I am so very excited to welcome you to the first installment of the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. We welcome back one of our most prolific guests, John Barba of My Golf Spy to share the story of the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. Let's dive into the first part of our interview now. John, welcome back to Talking Golf History. It is really good to be here, and I'm more than a little excited about today's topic.
1: This one's near and dear to both of our hearts, I can tell.
0: We've talked about doing this podcast for like two years, haven't we? Yep. Yep. Going back and, to
1: our first one on Spaulding.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, when we were talking about it at the, at the time, Ben Hogan was revived. <laughs> right. I mean, I think you might right. say like two years ago, it was like it was an exciting time and we were going to thank God or maybe ter- it's maybe it's terrible. We waited. But I mean, had we recorded it when we thought we were going to record it, we might have to do an addendum to that story. Right. It's a, it's it. It's funny. Um, Scott White told me once that
1: that the Ben Hogan Company has gotten up off the mat more times than Rocky Balboa. Yeah. Um, but even Rocky had to hang him up at at some point. And and uh, and sadly, that's I think where that's where the Hogan brand is right now for for golf equipment. Anyway,
0: there's no denying everything about Ben Hogan is shrouded in a bit of mystery and wonder, whether it's you know his secret quotation marks or the comeback following the bus accident. Or the question of whether he won five US Opens. That's one of my favorites. The Ben Hogan <laughs> Golf Company is really no different. Today on the show, we're diving into the amazing story of the rise and demise, or maybe better said, the rise and demise, and the rise and the demise, and the rise and the demise of Ben Hogan <laughs> Golf Company. Um, it's a
1: three act play, man. It's, it's, it's
0: I mean, I, out of all the stories we've told, you know, this one has multiple zombie stories where it comes back to life, right? I mean, it's right. basically yep. The Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe let's just start at the beginning. Can you share with us the events that occurred before 1953 and how Ben Hogan got into the equipment making business? Because 1953, I'm sure everyone who's listening knows the story behind 53. He wins the Triple Crown He's on top of the world. It doesn't look like Ben Hogan's ever going to lose another major. He's that dominant. How does the equipment company come up? Like Where does that happen in the fold of 1953?
1: Well, you could probably go back to his caddy days back at Glen Garden where he he met um, uh, Marvin Leonard. Uh, He caddied for Marvin Leonard, who was a lifelong friend, benefactor, some say father figure. Uh, But also while he was a caddy as a teenager, he learned the art of club making from the Glen Garden uh, Club Pro. So he was into he he, he kind of understood club making, and he was famously very persnickety about his own equipment that he played. Uh, he signed with McGregor in 1937. Again, with uh, Tony Penna assigned uh, Hogan, Byron Nelson, and Jimmy Demerit for like five thousand dollars, best deal in golf history. Um, and he was, he was very particular about his equipment, and whenever he'd go to get new equipment to the McGregor factory in Cincinnati, he would spend days there kind of looking over the shoulder of his club builders, uh, making sure that everything was done to his satisfaction. Um, and he was notoriously unhappy with the quality of the retail product that McGregor was making under his name. Uh, they had the Ben Hogan uh, model BAP 2322 that he just did not like. Uh, and he felt it, it was inferior to the Silver Scott line. But more importantly, I think he <laughs> felt it was inferior to the Byron Nelson line. There was a there was a, a, a lifelong uh, rivalry with Nelson, a competition with Nelson. So anytime anybody said his stuff wasn't as good as Nelson's, that kind of got on. Oof, Earth, yeah.
0: yeah, I can imagine.
1: So he was a little he was not thrilled with McGregor in that respect, the equipment he played was fine, but he wasn't thrilled with McGregor in what it was putting out under his name. Um, he also had classic problems with the McGregor ball. I mean, most pros did at the time. It was, they never got the ball right. You know,
0: were they required to play the McGregor ball? I imagine yeah, they were they back had, then, right? Yeah. yeah Solid they were, contracts. They were
1: They were required to, unless you're Ben Hogan, then when you're Ben Hogan, you can walk in and make a few demands. <laughs> um, uh, but he had classic issues with the ball. This the famous story is uh, before the uh, I think it was before the 1952 U.S. Open. It might have been the '53, where he was threatening to to go play the either the Spalding Dot or a Titleist ball for the U.S. Open. So management had him out to Cincinnati, and they walked through the entire process. They showed him all of their pro- you know the quality control and the manufacturing processes and how they tested the ball with their 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 robot driving machine. And the president, Henry uh, Cowan, said, as you can see, Mr. Hogan, uh, we are the most advanced golf ball manufacturing company on the planet. I mean, you even saw the saw our robot driving machine hit the balls. And Hogan said, and I quote, I wrote it down because it's a it's a famous one. He says, well, then I recommend I recommend that you enter that bleeping driving machine in the U.S. Open. <laughs> and then, I love that. He, he, he walked out. Played the Spalding Dot and won the U.S. Open. Wow! So he was—he—he was not a—he was having issues with McGregor. Yeah. In—in in, in, as of 1953.
0: Do you do you think it was McGregor can't fix these issues? I'm just going to have to do it my bleeping self. Is it kind of—is that the how the impetus of this? I think that's
1: part of it but also again you know, he had his accident in 49 yeah. he was playing only a handful of tournaments a year he's got to be looking at you know the what ha- what's going to happen when I can't do this anymore he was into oil he was into uh, a bunch of other things and was accumulating a nice nest egg but you know he was looking to, for you know what's his life going to be like once he hangs him up so, what does he know best? He knows golf and golf equipment best. So, I think that was his, his his the real impetus behind starting the company. His issues with McGregor and that other stuff, I think, was part of it. But I think it was more. It became an excuse rather than the sole purpose or the sole reason. He was just looking for his own interests
0: after golf. That makes sense. So, this is all in like. I mean, Ben Hogan's kind of a busy guy in 1953. He's yeah. he's having yeah. himself he's having himself a year. Right. And he decides, amongst all of that, right, the workload and the stress of trying to win every tournament that's put in front of him to open up his own equipment company in 1953. How does he do that? I mean, like, he's not bankrolling the whole thing as himself. That would be dangerous, I would assume. Right.
1: Well, he he has some very, very rich and powerful friends in Fort Worth. Uh, uh, Marvin Leonard, of course, the Leonard department store fortune. Uh, And uh, pretty much everybody in Texas was into oil back then. Uh, And uh, uh, his his other partner was... uh, Pollard Simons, a real estate developer. Um, they had been for, all been friends for a long time. And starting in, really starting in 1952, he's starting to put this plan together for a golf equipment company. And he's looking for a place to, to house it. They find a, an old plumbing shop in, uh, in Fort Worth with, that he buys, and they start to set up shop. So all this is going on in the background as he's winning the Masters, as he's winning the U.S. Open, and as he's winning the British Open. And it kind of comes to light, literally, when he's right off of the boat coming back from the UK after winning at Carnoustie. So he 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 first press conference before the ticker tape parade. He's meeting with a bunch of reporters, and a bunch of reporters talk to him. And one guy says, "Hey, so what are you going to do now, Ben? Are you going to go buy a ranch like uh, like oh, Byron Nelson?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that whole Byron Nelson thing comes back, and he, you know he's literally off of the boat, and he says, "No, no, I'm going to start making golf clubs." That's when he lets it slip. You know, I'm going to start making golf clubs. I think I have a revolutionary way of making golf clubs. We have several experimental models, and we hope to be in production soon. And that's kind of how the world learned that Hogan was going to be in the in the in the golf club manufacturing business. Interestingly, uh, I found an article by uh, uh, Kurt Sampson, who was an, a Hogan biographer, and he he he. You know, looking through the rearview mirror, he had a little different take on the nineteen fifty three season. He said Hogan knew he was going to do this, so three championships, maybe the greatest season anybody's ever had up till you know until Tiger, was all about market share. It was the ultimate branding campaign.
0: <laughs> That's unbelievable. So, so yeah. yeah, he was famously meticulous as a golfer, and if the stories are true, that that pursuit of perfection bled into his new equipment company. You know, know, I've heard this, you know, these stories have run rampant, but are there any truth to these stories of how meticulous he was throwing out inventory and, you know, perhaps the pursuit of perfection over perhaps the pursuit of the mighty dollar?
1: Oh gosh. Yeah. Hogan has famously said, you know, that your name is the most important thing you have always take care of it. So he was, nothing was going to go out that he wasn't 100% satisfied, but he was into every detail. He was, he personally purchased the grinding machines and all the different delays the and things that they were going to be setting up in the, in the factory. Um, in the, the story about, about scrapping the first, first run of products, absolutely okay. true. Um, they started in 1953 with plans of introducing product in 1954. Well, they they you know the spring of 1954 is coming around and there's still no progress here. Uh, in uh, in April, um, leading up to the Masters, uh, Golf Magazine they had it, Hogan, the Hogan Company printed an ad saying they expected to release their first product by uh, by May first. And true Hogan style, it, he said, these will truly be jewels. Uh, he had, he, he specified each iron is going to have a four degree loft progression. Uh, and then that the woods would have a three degree loft progression. And, and again, another quote, they would gra- graduate in length, width and thickness of head to be a perfectly balanced given dimension calibrated through a microscopic instrument. Each club shall have the perfect overall weight and swing weight to produce the ultra in a balanced set. All clubs bearing my name are being manufactured under my supervision. Nobody was talking about clubs in that language in 1954. I mean, you go back and look at all the different ads. Nobody's talking about it like that. Uh, it's a little, it's, you know, it was, there was sizzle. There was a little bit of steak, but here he's talking about them as pieces of art, of jewelry and ultra precision, etc. So nobody was talking about equipment like that. So yeah, he's very, very, very particular. And the prototypes show up.
0: So this is this is before the prototype. So he's he's saying, I've put in the time, I've helped manufacture these things, they're on their way, and and he hasn't even seen what's going to be produced.
1: Right. Wow. Okay. And they show up. They show up and he hates them. He, he hates, hates them. them. Oh, backtrack back backtrack just a second. Yeah. The eve of the masters, Pollard Simon sends Hogan a letter. He's in Augusta getting ready to play the Masters. Under the veil of wishing you well, good luck, good luck. But he includes in this thing, in this letter, there are some things going on in Fort Worth that will require your immediate attention. First thing he states is that um, uh, they had just ordered ten thousand decals for the for the uh, for the heads of the of the drivers of the woods, and Hogan didn't like the decals and he sent them back. Whoa! This ten thousand of them. Yeah, he sent them back. And and, you know, Simon's starting to get a little worried. You know, this is going to slow us down. It's going to cause more delays, not to mention that's going to cost us money. So there's that backdrop. And then the prototype, then the heads show up and Hogan hates him. He says they look terrible. Uh, and the hosels, uh, the borings and the hosels were very inconsistent. So physically, they couldn't make them. So he does famously grind down, melt down and scrap one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of worth of heads that came to
0: the company. And what is that worth today? One hundred and fifty thousand, yeah.
1: About two million
0: dollars worth of inventory. Whoo! Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's an executive uh, decision, if I've if i ever heard of one. So they're oh, a year yes. they're a year into opening an equipment company that hasn't produced any equipment. You, you know, you right. just mentioned Simon. How did he? Ac- how are they accepting this pursuit of perfection from their their name partner? It couldn't have gone over well.
1: Yeah, Simon's has about a half million dollars sunk into this, and he's getting more and more nervous. So at that point, Hogan says, all right, listen, I'll buy you out. And he mortgages everything he owns to come up with $450,000 to buy out Simon's. So now it's just him and Leonard as partners in this company. So Simon's is out. Uh, It's just Leonard and Hogan. And by the middle, uh, middle of 54, late 54, the product actually does come out. And yeah, it, it's it, it is has as Hogan would like it, and it was very well received. the the the, the saber irons and the uh, and the per, and the precision woods were the first uh, were the first irons that came out.
0: And they shipped. When did they sh- they end up shipping? The end of
1: 1954. I'm gonna say yeah, the end of uh, yeah. They they were sh- the revamped product line was shipped in late 1954.
0: Gosh, that's crazy. So they burned through a lot of cash already. They've released the product in 1954 were they well received like did the public just go nuts for him or do we know anything of you know how did that initial you know salvo into the market do Well he sold
1: specifically through golf pro- professionals that was his you know through the pro shops he had no retail line whatsoever at that point his plan was to sell exclusively through through pro shops Pro shops in the 50s and through into the into the into the into the 70s 80s and even early 90s were still selling a, a, a huge portion of of golf product. So it, while he didn't have the retail sales to boost his numbers, the numbers were pretty strong, and there was a, there was a there was there was a reason for success, a reason for optimism. Um, not long after the buyout, after he bought out Simon's, um, a bunch of Hogan's buddies pooled some resources together to invest and take Hogan's name off of the loans. So he, so he was a, not at personal risk and it was kind of a cool list. It was Marvin Leonard, of course, uh, on that, on that list. And then he put together a, a, a whole bunch of guys. One was Bing Crosby who again famously was, was, was the golf bond. In Hollywood <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, New York Yankee owner, Dan topping, uh, was there and a guy you, I know you've heard of, a, a pretty well-known and well-respected California car dealer by the name of Ed Re- Eddie Lowry.
0: That's crazy. I mean, when you think about it, just, I mean, <laughs> you, you take a couple of those names, maybe three, and you pair them together and that's George Coleman and Eddie Lowry and you basically have two of the central figures that made the famous match at Cypress Point happen. I mean, a right, twist of history, right. <laughs> like something that hasn't even occurred yet. These two were <laughs> investors in the Ben Hogan company. Dude, the connections we're going to run
1: into the the through the rest of this story are even more mind blowing than that. This one's this one this one's a the the match is a footnote doll. This and some of the some of the weird connections
0: that wind up getting made. So so he has friends that know him, friends that trust him. They're mm-hmm. they're friends that are going to let Ben Hogan do things the Ben Hogan way, right? Which is just he's going to be meticulous. It's he's in this pursuit of perfection. How did the company do? once simon's exited and his new partners came on board to support him well again branding
1: is everything obviously in in any business so 53 seasons still had hogan at the forefront then in 1955 at the u.s open hogan thinks he has it won with his own now he's playing his own equipment and he gets tied at the last minute of the final round by jack fleck Who's also playing Hogan equipment. So we've got an 18 hole playoff the next day that Fleck famously wins, but the two finalists are playing Ben Hogan equipment. So it's like, okay, the best players are playing Ben Hogan.
0: Yeah, you couldn't ask for that. I mean, ben you've Hogan. got a, you know, Rags from Rich's story and Jack Fleck coming out of nowhere and uh, winning it with Ben Hogan equipment that was fitted for him by Ben Hogan his, himself.
1: And hand delivered prior to the U.S. Open. The yeah, it's incredible. Hand delivered by Hogan. Yeah. yeah,
0: And you know, <laughs> and there's, I, I mean, I'll misquote it, but there's that famous quote by Ben Hogan after the tournament that uh, essentially says, you know, I didn't win the tournament, but my equipment did. Right. So <laughs> it was definitely a win for him in that regard. Did 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 that victory in in '55 for the equipment? I mean, how did that push the Ben Hogan Company from a a profit standpoint, from a visibility standpoint, what did it do for the company?
1: Well, obviously, it pushed it forward. By the end of the decade, um, the Hogan Company sales were, were at about two million dollars. Not in the league of of McGregor. McGregor was, I think, about a sixty million dollar company at that point. They were, they were, they were the biggest name in golf. But for a company that started from zero in 1954, actually, if you if you, if you you look at the scrap on $150,000 worth of inventory, they were less than zero in 1954. To fast forward to 1959, 1960, it's a $2 million company with a very nice, very healthy 10% profit margin. So
0: it's going it very well. Seeing good success. So- We're ending the 1950s. We enter 1960, which of course, you know, Ben Hogan makes a run at the 1960 U S open and comes up short with a Mm -hmm. bogey, triple bogey finish to give it to Arnold Palmer. Yep. But in 1960, the Ben Hogan golf company is sold for the first time. Can you share a little bit about the company that bought the Ben Hogan golf company? And maybe do we know why it was sold first? We
1: were, I I really looked into this and, and maybe, uh, uh, a better investigator could find out some reasons, but what I found out was it was, it was to focus. He sold it for a couple of reasons. One was the 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 public reason was I want to focus more on club design. That was sure. his passion. Yeah. He so he's not leaving the company. The he's going
0: to stay there. You're right. He just doesn't want the financial burden of the company holding him down.
1: Right, and that, and also, he wanted to pay back his investors, his benefactors, uh, with a nice return on investment, as well as he wound up, as a result of the sale, he did wind up putting a million dollars into his own pocket for you know for, for his own security. So, it was a win-win for for Hogan, for the investors, and for the ultimate purchaser, uh, the American Manufacturing and Foundry Company, known as AMF. Now, AMF, as we know, was known primarily for it's bowling equipment. We're back here
0: again. We're back to bowling. <laughs> of course. Was that McGregor? <laughs> McGregor in Brunswick.
1: Yeah. Brunswick bought yep. McGregor in 1958. And I got to imagine AMF's looking at their brother over here saying, oh, we can do that too.
0: Yeah. Two years and, later, uh, let's just buy a, an equipment company. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. Right. The tie-ins are insane.
1: Yeah. And the thing about AMF is it, we know them as a bowling company, but they were a billion dollar multi-diversified Operation. I mean, they were huge. AMF was started in 1900 uh, in Brooklyn, New York, by a guy named Rufus Patterson. He was the founder, and he invented uh, the very first automatic cigarette manufacturing machine. That's kind of how he made his name. And then the company evolved into manufacturing other types of machinery for all different types of of products and processes. And they made uh, and they were uh, involved in consumer goods so they made in in the 40s they invented the uh, or they developed their own automatic pin setting machine for bowling uh they were in they made bicycles they made electrical equipment Uh, they developed a pretzel twisting machine
0: okay i like this company already then yeah yeah
1: they does not like a good pretzel that's that's half of it yeah the other half of the company is huge they're into their they were amf was actually part of what eisenhower later uh uh classified as the uh military-industrial complex, they made nuclear reactors.
0: Get <laughs> they out! Sold, what?
1: They, like, they sold the first nuclear reactor Pakistan in Iran, late 50s, early 60s. They made missile silos and guidance systems for ICBMs. I mean, this, was, this company was a behemoth. In the 60s, they would wind up actually buying Harley-Davidson motorcycles, as well as a company called Hatteras Yachts. And we have to remember Hatteras because they become an important player later on. I mean, insane. So a, it's insane,
0: big- right? It's insane. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to make golf clubs that you can play when you're done building your nuclear silos or, you know, I don't know. It's just crazy. So how did the Ben Hogan Golf Company do after the acquisition? I mean, and I guess Hogan did stay a- aboard the company, correct? Yeah, he, he
1: maintained his role as chairman of the board, and he stayed involved in, in golf club design. That was his thing. Um, as the, the years went by, as we get into the 70s and, and you know, on, on into the 80s, his role becomes more and more ceremonial. So by the 70s, Hogan has no real authority in the company that bears his name he has an office he goes in every day uh he still when he walked out onto the factory floor steve dreyer tells the story that when he would walk out onto the factory floor everybody kind of tightened up and made sure they were on top of what they were doing because hogan could famously pick up a club off the rack hold it down and say this is wrong
0: wow you
1: know the specs are off or whatever he, he had that way about him and everybody was nervous they all paid attention and, and he said it better be right because if it wasn't you'd hear about it but again, hiring, firing, things like that—he had no real, no real authority as this as we get into the 70s and the 80s. There were there were products that were put out by Hogan uh, during that time that he had nothing to do with, and he would let management know that he wasn't happy with them, and they said, "Well, thank you, Ben."
0: Wow, they just say forget, you know, thank you for your feedback. And and was the yeah, company well. doing well at this time? 60s, 70s, and yeah, 80s. I mean, they- yeah. I mean, AMF never
1: really invested a ton of money in the company. They just kind of let it alone and, um, they were successful. They had developed a, you know, a, an incredibly high reputation for high quality, uh, precision golf clubs, uh, high quality top shelf forgings for the better golfer. Their, 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 uh, persimmon woods were among the best in the business up there with McGregor. So they're doing very well, uh, from a, from a, performance standpoint and from a sales standpoint, they're not lighting the world on fire. They're not the biggest name in golf. They're not Wilson at that point or any of the others, but they're doing very well. However, going on in and they were making money too. They always they always showed a profit every year. Uh, but going on in Scottsdale, Arizona was this odd little Norwegian guy and his funny sounding company name that was slowly but surely becoming a burr in the saddle of all of the legacy manufacturers of, of Spaulding, of Wilson, and of Hogan. And that would be Ping.
0: Wow. And so how does Ping factor in here? What does that do to the market? What does that do for Ben Hogan? I mean, I imagine Ping's probably not making a major dent initially with the big boys, but the Ben Hogan Golf Company is not, you know, it's kind of, a, am, am I wrong? It's still a niche, you know, pro shop, uh, you know, product am i wrong no you're right it's a it's 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 not you know
1: mcgregor wilson spalding they're the biggest companies in the game um hogan's kind of a step below that in terms of sales and market penetration but they still had that reputation of being you know premier and precision uh ping is starting to make inroads starting in 69 when they released their first irons the karsten irons and then in uh through 78 when they released the original ping eye, they're starting to establish the value of investment cast
0: yeah arms, versus uh, forged versus forged which has been the primary product that has been delivered since irons have been made exactly
1: this is new this is revolutionary this is different uh it's consistent. You can make the same product over and over and over again. Uh, when it comes out of the mold, it's almost it's virtually ready to go. And the cost per head is about half of that as what, what it would cost to make a a forged iron head. So Karsten's getting some serious momentum going down in Scottsdale, and it all goes kaboom uh, in 1982 when he releases the ping Eye 2
0: And that was a game changer for the market, Correct. that was an absolute game changer the ping i2
1: to this day remains the best-selling iron in golf history um and in 1982 he releases this and it's the perfect storm i mean it was the culmination of a lot of evolutions that karsten had been working on since the early 60s and this iron combines um ease of playability tremendous forgiveness you look at it it looks different it's got this big old cavity in the back and it's got this eye you know and um and the ball, it just works. It just works. And regular golfers flock to this thing because it does the unimaginable. It makes the game a little bit easier to play, whereas forged blades do not. Forged blades, you know, reveal every flaw that you have. Investment cast, the Ping I-2 kind of says, you're not perfect, but you're okay. <laughs> I like it. What's and you, the, what- yeah, and you can have some fun here.
0: Yeah, what is the bottom line impact for the Ben Hogan Golf Company? Come with the Ping entering the market like, well, obviously they are they entered it earlier, but 1982, you know, it really announces itself, right, as a major player in the golf equipment company business
1: it starts to expose some of the, the the inherent flaws that in the Hogan company that had been massed over, uh, they were still making good margins on golf equipment, but they had expanded into bags and gloves and apparel and everything else that had lower profit margins. So as the, the high margin sales for the club started to drop the overall profitability and profit margins of the Hogan company started to drop as well. They were losing market share and and that eventually showed itself in eighty. I think it was 1984, uh, nineteen eighty four. Or 1984, Their their sales hit about fifty million, but the profit margins are dwindling. Nineteen eighty six, they lose money for the very first time. They have a two and a half million dollar loss for at the for the very first time.
0: So this enters a interesting time in the history of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. Uh, you know. I, I say if interesting is an understatement. Yeah. If there's one person <laughs> yeah, you can kind of start the blame for the downfall of the Ben Go- Hogan golf company, the first villain I think maybe in our story is a corporate raider. Tell us about Irving Jacobs. Interesting guy.
1: Irwin.
0: Ir- Irwin sorry. Irwin
1: Jacobs, he was, he was known as Irv the liquidator. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: Good nickname. Good. Yeah, Better than the terminator, the I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah. Instead of Vlad the impaler, he's a yeah. liquidator. Right. Um, Interesting. Uh, Jacobs was a corporate raider uh, of 80s of fame. I mean, the 80s were famous for, for corporate raiders, and he was the he was one of the best of the bunch. He was really good at it. Um, dude was a, he was a young guy. He was a college dropout. I went to the University of Minnesota literally for about a day before deciding this wasn't for him. And um, his father was had made money uh, uh, buying and reselling liquidated burlap fabric crazy and i know i know it's minnesota you know it's you can burlap's a thing i guess <laughs> um but he uh he would buy his job is he would buy stakes in struggling companies that's how he made his fortune uh and then he would be agitating for changes in the company and he would be threatening leveraged buyouts what would happen is when he would threaten a buyout then you know the the stock prices would start to go up, so he would make a nice profit on the stock he did buy. If he didn't, it wasn't successful in taking over the company. He'd still make a nice profit on the stocks that he did buy, or else he'd wind up buying the company outright, and then he would turn around and sell off the parts at a profit. Uh, famously, his 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 um, his first big success was in when well, he was 33 years old in 1975. He bought the struggling Grain Belt Brewery in Minneapolis. And Grain Belt had been around forever, and the brewery itself was struggling. He bought it for $4 million with the plans of turning it around. Now, I'm not sure how how he committed he was to the plan because eight months later, he sold the brand name to a competitor for $8 million. And then he auctioned off all the equipment. And then a couple months after that, he sold the land that the fact that the brewery was on to the city of Minneapolis for $5 million. So in less than a year, he turns $4 million into $13 million. This guy's sharp.
0: Yeah. $9 million profit. Unbelievable. Yeah. He, he's an operator.
1: Think about, you, know, you said he was kind of a villain. Uh, and, and I think in this story, he kind of plays that role. But he, nobody's all on one thing, you know. I, I read up on Jacobs and a tragic, tragic ending to his life, which we can talk about later. But um, uh, you know, he, there was a lot. There was a lot to the guy. He was viewed as a heartless corporate raider, and I think in the mid '80s he was. By the end of the decade, you know, he saw what happened to uh, Drexel Byrne, and Lambert. They went bankrupt, and they were, that was the company that was funding a lot of this stuff. And then Michael Milton goes to jail. Michael Milken goes to jail uh, uh, for you know for for junk bonds, and I think at that point he realizes I don't want to be part of that world. And actually, his focus shifts in the last part of his life to long-term ownership stakes of long-term companies. The rating part of his life was over. Now, he made a lot of money doing this, so it makes that decision a little bit easier. But that's kind of the way the, his life changed in that respect. So in
0: 1985, he sets his sights on AMF, which owns the Ben Hogan Golf Company. How does that hostile takeover come about?
1: Well, it's it's much like some of his others. In in '84, he tried to buy Kaiser Steel, which was really struggling out in California. He tried to buy Avco, an aerospace company, and even tried to take over Disney. And it was the same, the same. And that was a busy year. Okay,
0: yeah, no uh, that, kidding. It was the
1: same script every time. He'd buy shares, he'd agitate for change, uh, threaten a, a hostile takeover. So in order to prevent the hostile takeover, a white knight would come in buy up the company uh, and Jacobs would would capitalize on the you know by selling his shares new new high value shares in those companies to the to the white knight he made 90 million bucks doing just that in 1984 Uh, another thing that he had done and he did this uh, a few years earlier is that uh, you you know the story of WT Grant the one of the original discount retail discount uh, department stores they went bankrupt in the late 70s Jacobs bought their accounts receivable for forty-four million dollars. The accounts receivable was worth over a near uh, over two hundred seventy-five million dollars. Whoa! So he made a lot of money on that, and it's it was money that just kept that just kept feeding his takeovers. So, with all that in his pocket, we go to nineteen eighty-five. He has his sights set on not necessarily on AMF, but on Hatteras Yachts, because his company already owned some boat manufacturing concerns and that was one of his passions was was boating. He wanted to buy Hatteras yachts from AMF. AMF said, yeah, no, we're not selling. We're not interested in selling. So Jacobs doesn't take no for an answer, right? This is this is what he does. He he looks at the company, he says is this this AMF, as we already said, way over diversified by this point okay they owned everything they're way over diversified but they've been losing money steadily for the past seven or eight years to the tune of about eight million dollars a year so the stock prices are starting to go yeah. down
0: but it's like a billion dollar company to put that in perspective right yeah. massive yes
1: it's a billion dollar wow. billion dollar company that's t- that's that's kind of built on a little bit of a house of cards so he says okay over over undervalued over diversified this is a this is a target so he starts since they won't sell him Hatteras, he starts the hostile
0: takeover. I mean, this guy's Gordon Gecko, right from Wall Street? Yeah, exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right? Good, right? Where's
0: Bud Fox in this story? <laughs> That's what I want to know. But, so Gordon Gecko's taking down AMF. Yeah. So he he he
1: he buys. He makes him a, he makes him the proverbial offer they can't refuse to the stockholders, and he takes over control of AMF for six hundred million dollars in nineteen eighty five. Now, the first thing he does is he sells off the um, industrial and energies half of the company. So he sells that off right away. And then he starts starts looking at different aspects of what he has left, the consumer division, and starts to sell off a part of that. He wound up selling uh, the bowling AMF bowling division to a guy in Virginia named Bill Goodwin for $225 million. Let's remember. For Mr. Goodwin, shall we? For later on in the yeah, story, crazy. Um, again, just the it's a it's a, it's a big circle. Everything comes back. Um, he wound up after after selling off all those original parts. He wound up with um, Head Ski and Tennis. That was one of the companies. Uh, Hatteras Yachts. Uh, various other companies. One made scuba gear uh amf Voit, which made ball you know made inflatable rubber balls you know basketballs and footballs and things like that tyrolius ski bindings and ben hogan and all of that uh jerry austri who had been named president of hogan at that time author of a wonderful uh memoir on his hogan years um said he got all 600 million dollar back and then some he basically sold off all this stuff and he got Hogan Tyrolia, the Scuba Company, Hatteras Yachts, et
0: cetera, for free. Wow, insane! And actually, probably, probably made a little money on the deal while he was while he was at it. So what happens next? So he oh. owns Ben Hogan. I mean, coming back to Ben Hogan, he owns Ben Hogan Golf Company. Do do we know? I mean, did he have any interest in golf, or is this just one of the many raids that he you know conquered?
1: As best we know, it was just it was it it came along for the right. He wanted Hatteras Yachts; he got all this other stuff. So you know, it, it wasn't necessarily I wanted the Ben Hogan Company. I wanted Hatteras Yachts. All this other stuff kind of came with the deal.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. You spent six hundred million dollars to buy the yacht company, but I guess he got what he wanted, and he probably made a ton of money in the process. So AMF yep, has yep. been acquired. We've entered the mid nineteen eighties. Which seems suitable with Mr. Gordon Gecko out there, uh busy breaking up AMC. Right. Walk us through the turbulent mid-1980s for the Ben Hogan Golf Company. How's how so the eighties go after all of this?
1: The eighties through the mid-90s, probably the craziest decade in of any golf company in history. And we've seen we've already examined what happened with McGregor, but this 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 truly would make a great movie. All right. It really would. Um the market's getting away from Hogan at this point. The Ping i two is just, is just taken off. H- Hogan's market share is going down, down, down. Now they had they had they had game improvement irons. They called them players assist irons because they weren't going to go to the game improvement <laughs> right, moniker. Right. It just wasn't going to work. They had the Hogan radial and the Magnum, both really good irons, but they didn't look like the Ping. Okay, that didn't have the cavity back. They didn't yeah. have what Ping had. Everybody wanted that. Um, so they didn't have what made it distinctive. 85, they lose money for the first time, the $2.5 million. That was in 86. They lost money for the first time. Um, Christmas party of 1986. This would make, again, every every couple of years, right around Christmas time, things go nuts at Hogan.
0: Yeah, Christmas that's true, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry You're fired. Yeah, Merry <laughs> Christmas. About a week. About a week before
1: the Christmas party, Jerry Austry says that uh, he met with uh, 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 leaders of Minstar. Minstar was the name of, of Jacob's company. Uh, leaders of Minstar. And they started asking a whole bunch of questions. And they wanted they wanted Ostry's opinion on how the president of Hogan Company was doing. And Ostry's a smart guy. He kind of smelled the rat here. He said, hey, I'm not going to knife my boss in the back. You know, I'd love to be president of this company someday, but I'm not going to knife my boss in the back you know, to get there, you make a decision on how he's doing. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. A couple weeks later, at the Christmas party, the president is fired and they give the job to Jerry austry. And Jostrey now, t- now takes over as president of the company. 1987, Austrey hits the ground running. Um, he looks at the market. Forged iron sales are down by about 30% industry-wide. Woodwood sales are down by about 40%. Metalwoods and game improvement are taking over. Those sales are booming. Ping's doing well. TaylorMade's catching on. Cobra's coming along. All these new companies are giving the legacy companies fits. So Wilson's having the same set of problems. McGregor's having the same problems. Spalding's having the same problems. Um, Austria starts a focus group to find out What's going? On. He's a data-driven guy, smart guy, data-driven guy. Not going to make decisions based on what people think. I want to make decisions based on what we know. So he wants to find out what's going on. Uh, and what he found was golfers equated Hogan with high-quality forgings for better players. They had a very, very high opinion of the Hogan brand. Okay, they thought it was a terrific product, super high quality for the very best golfers. I want ping.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I want the ping. I too. I want something easy. I want player you know, game improvement. I want cavity back. They understood Hogan was the best, but they understood that this was the best for their games. So Austria took that to heart. We've got to come up with something that will compete directly with the ping. I Two, And that was that was that was his direction after that.
0: So it's the battle between ping, but really perimeter weighted clubs that are offering forgiveness. You know, yep. where did where does Ben Hogan factor in in this war of golf clubs? Right, you know where where was he in this? Was he he's still involved? Right.
1: He's still involved. He's still involved with the company. He, he speaks at the sales meetings. Um, you know, he's I, I, he loved the salespeople. He loved working with the salespeople and meeting with them and, and uh, attending the sales meetings. But he was in the bigger picture. He, had, he was starting to become the invisible man. Yeah. No real authority, no real authority in the company. But he was outwardly. He was not
0: like a figurehead at the company is that fair he
1: he was he was a figurehead at the company but to customers of the company to golfers to you know the rank you know guys like you and me who buy golf clubs he was he was virtually not there literally not there um so how'd they turn that around well, well austria found this this out specifically uh by visiting pro shops their clients and they would go in and they'd start talking about, you know, uh, how great the Hogan staff was doing. And Hogan had a tremendous uh, PGA Tour staff with uh, Lanny Watkins, Mark O'Meara, and many, many others. Uh, one of the largest in the game at that point. But the pros didn't want, didn't really care about that. They wanted to know what was up with Ben Hogan. Is he physically okay? Is his health good? Why haven't we heard from him? Why don't we see him? Um, you know, what's going on? Um, Hogan still had some influence with the R&D department at, at his company. If, if they wanted anything, he you know Hogan had to be on board with it. but um, as far as outwardly, uh, there really wasn't any he, he was he was the invisible man. Ovi recognized this and he recognized that Hogan was still Hogan and people and people cared. So he has a meeting with Hogan in early 1987 and says, and, and we need to place an asterisk on this meeting too, because this one comes back to us as well. Uh, but he he tells Hogan, hey, we're getting beat up by ping we're getting beat up by cavity back irons we're getting beat up by metal woods i need your help to rebuild the reputation of this company and hogan quick this you know man a few words just ponders he just looks at Austria and says okay that's all he said okay i'm in i'm in and at that point Austria starts maybe one of the greatest uh Ad and marketing campaigns in golf history where he utilizes Hogan in a lot of creative ways that really didn't cost the company very much money at all. It, you know, exclusive interviews in golf magazines uh, that 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 golf pros and you know, pro shops read those magazines. And he, he made personal appearances uh, and he really he started to get out there and become a figure once again and. Um, they. This was the year they they filmed those famous uh, yellow sweater ads. Yeah. Where they went out to Riviera in Los Angeles and just filmed Hogan that Hogan swing. Hogan is an older man, but still had that swing, and they were just beautifully filmed and very very effective. To the point where, in one year, Austria takes that two and a half million dollar loss and turns it around into a two and a half million dollar profit for 1987.
0: There's a great story that you mentioned in your notes to me about those TV ads from Riviera that they forgot Ben Hogan's like (laughs) signature cap. (laughs) It's such a good story. Like you're you're right. When you think of Ben Hogan, you know, you you don't think of him in a baseball cap, right? You know, you don't think of him with his flowing hair or later, you know, being bald, of course, but you think of him in that signature, like kind of newsboy cap. And yet they're going to film out Riviera and nobody brings a cap. So what? Right. tell us a little bit about that story because it's just a funny side note to that because, you know, if you look back at famous golf ads, you're not wrong. It's Ben Hogan in the yellow sweater with that hat, just yep. professional. So yeah. almost filmed without a cap. What happened?
1: Well, I, again, Jerry tells this story beautifully in his, in his, in his autobiography. Um, it, the, getting Hogan to do this was, you know, not easy. They had it took a lot of convincing and cajoling and a lot of logistics to make it happen because Hogan hadn't traveled. He hadn't. They can. Jerry couldn't remember the last time Hogan had been on an airplane before going out to L.A. to film these ads. Uh, So there was a lot involved in getting him and Valerie to go on this trip, to go out there and actually do this. Um, And. Austria gets on the plane with Hogan. They're in first class seats and they they're on the plane. They're flying to, to L.A. They're drinking vodka tonics on the flight and having a grand old time. Austria says it was a, it was a wonderful trip. He, he truly loved it. He said Hogan enjoyed it. But through all of the planning stages, nobody thought about the hats. They thought about everything else down to the yellow sweater. But nobody remembered the hats. They get to Los Angeles. They're in the trailer, uh, you know, that they had set up at Riviera for this for the shoot. And they're looking around and go, "Where are the hats? They oh. brought hats." So they place an emergency phone call back to the factory. They box up a whole bunch of hats, and one of the factory guys buys two first-class tickets <laughs> on the next plane to L.A. One for him and one for the hats. So the
0: hats are sitting in a That's awesome. Seat,
1: flying out to Los Angeles, so they can film those. Film those can you imagine
0: being that guy dropping off the hats to Ben Hogan? I mean, I, you know, he was such a happy person, hmm. <laughs> not demanding <laughs> yeah. at all.
1: <laughs> as, far, as far as Jerry tells it, I don't know as Hogan knew that they actually
0: forgot the hats. Oh, there you go. Well played. Well played.
1: Yeah, I don't know if they even for, if, that they forgot the hats. They were just delay, delay, delay. Wait till the hats get here. But I, I wouldn't want to be the guy who realizes, oh crap, we forgot the hats.
0: <laughs> so this Hogan marketing campaign, how successful was it? I mean, was it the key to this turnaround? You think? I mean, was getting you know, the man behind the brand out there and in front of people.
1: It was a very, very important first step to get that company back on people's radar. Because again, it was all paying all the time, right? And, you know, we had links at that time as well was still, was, was in, in, into investment casting. So the other companies are starting to look at investment casting. Hogan's still forging, forging, forging. They had come out with some investment cast irons. Uh, it's something that they had done, but they outsourced it all. Um but they were still that that the 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 idea of that company was it was precision forgings for the better golfer, and it was over here and it kept getting pushed to the side. Hogan brought it back into the middle of the conversation. Um, you and, know
0: us for for you know being a player's iron, we're the brand you need to be with, right? Right. And, don't be and, something you don't You know you don't never intended to be. And it was that
1: and it was that connection with Hogan himself that people wanted you know so, that connect with him in you know him out there doing tv interviews doing magazine interviews being in those ads that connection was i, I it, it it was very very important to golfers at that time and it's helped turn the tides from that loss to to a bit of a profit and it helped us get going in you know from 87 into 88 and it helped start the uh, ball rolling for what turned out to be the hogan edge
0: yeah so in 1987 they turn around a $2.5 million loss into a $2.5 million profit. 1987 turns into a banner year. Um, but there's a little bit of chaos coming up in the story. Let's start with the, the tailwinds. What's going well for the Ben Hogan Golf Company? And then maybe dive into the headwinds. What, is, what are the problems they're facing? A little bit of chaos because you can never get a lot of good times at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. That's what we've learned. Like we've done it, we're on top, and then ah, yeah. crap! What the hell happened?
1: Yeah, what what could? Po- it's crazy. I mean, it's just insane. Great. What could possibly go yeah. wrong?
0: <laughs> Most people at least have like you know five years of a good ride, but it's 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 there's always waves in this yeah. company.
1: Yeah, there's something lurking behind every corner. Um, remember, we said earlier about the asterisk around that meeting that Austria had with Hogan in early 1987. Well, before that meeting, uh, right after the PGA show, Austria and all of the presidents of the former AMF companies that were owned by Minstar went on this corporate retreat that was really ultra fancy and everything. Uh, but at that meeting, Minstar tells all these presidents that all of them, except for Hatteras yachts, were going to be put up for sale. Wow.
0: So like you just turned it around. Yeah. You know, like it's sunny skies and sunshine. And then, hey, guess what? We're getting rid of everything.
1: Yeah. Well, you're in the process of just starting to turn it around. 87 was yeah. the turnaround. But you're just getting out of the blocks. You're Jerry Ostrie. You've been on the job for about a month. And all of a sudden, well, let's pull the rug out from under you. Unreal. You're going to be sold. And, and doggone it, we're going to, when we sell you, we want you to be. Profitable. We, you've got to turn this thing around so the buyer thinks he's buying a company that's profitable and not one that's losing money. It's because we want top dollar for this, and we want we want, we can't do that if we're if we're if we're losing money. So that's what's hanging over Jerry's head at that time, and through all of 1987, this is what he's doing. At the same time, he's trying to force, he's trying to to push through the Hogan Edge, uh, and develop what really was the first mass-produced forged. Perimeter weighted cavity back iron. So this is this is on his plate all through 1987. Revive the company, get Ben Hogan back involved in the marketing. Remember the hats, <laughs> and again get R and D on board with developing, and get manufacturing on board to figure out how to manufacture a forged perimeter weighted cavity back iron. Which had never been done in a widespread manner. I mean, Wilson had one, had come up with one a few years earlier, but it was only sold at retail and really was kind of a footnote to history. The Edge was the one that really made history. But they had to figure all this stuff out. It wasn't easy and it hadn't been done before. And then in 87, you want headwinds, 87, Ping is still, you know, the, Ping is still going strong. The the groove kerfuffle with uh, the PGA and the USGA is coming along and people saying, oh, my God, these things have illegal grooves. I better go out and get a (laughs) set.
0: That's just how golfers think, right? It's like they're getting ripped for illegal grooves that are helping you too much. I need to buy these. Before they take I, them I, off the market, yeah. I, I Just like if this know. if the ball rollback happens, everyone's going to have like crazy stacks of boxes of like Pro V ones sitting yeah. in there. <laughs> you know, it, it is funny that people do think like that because, uh, oh yeah, in 1931 we rolled the ball back, and there's this great article talking. It was a, a newspaper reporter talking about how golfers were basically making a run on their local pro shops. To stack up on all of the one point six two golf balls they could, and just you know because they didn't want to make this change to the you know what they were nicknaming the balloon ball. We're just we're built that way, and and it yeah it's yeah. funny because they're doing something in theory that is against the USGA's rulings, but it actually helps sell sales.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'll bring in my other career into this. In the eighties, when we it might have been early nineties, when it was mandated that we go from that we start using 1.6 gallon flush water closets, toilets. There was a date where you couldn't manufacturers couldn't make make anything larger than that. The sales of two and a half gallon flush toilets went through the roof
0: for the, yeah. for the months preceding. Yeah, make that. a run,
1: make, <laughs> make a run
0: on the inventory.
1: We got to have them. We got to. The other thing that happened in '87 was the second best selling iron of all time was released, and that was the Tommy Armour 845s, which was basically a better looking Ping I-2. So now there's another element that Hogan's got to deal with, which is Tommy Armour. So that's there's there's good things happening, but okay, we're going to be up for sale. We got to keep this under our hat as long as we can, because we've got to stay focused on making the pay, making the edge. But in in August, we have another competitor that we have to deal with. So it's so like,
0: does Ben Hogan know about is, is at, at this time? Does Ben Hogan is he aware that they're, you know. Going to sell the company, or when? How is he made aware of it? Do we know? Don't really, I, not anything that I could determine. But at some point during that
1: year, the rumors started uh, in '87. The rumors started that that Hogan was up for sale. So, so Ben Hogan had to have learned about it. But what was worse was worse in terms of of the the, the political and social climate at the time. It became known that a, a Japanese company was one of the leading bidders or one of the leading candidates to purchase. Hogan. Now, dial back to 1987. What was going on in 1987? It was what they would what uh, pundits called the economic Pearl Harbor. Japanese companies were buying up interest in the U.S. hand over fist. And you couldn't you couldn't pick up the newspaper back then without reading a headline that a japanese company had bought 20th century fox or japanese company had bought uh the the rockefeller center in new york city or a a movie lot or a a high-tech company or real estate it was it was at that point people think oh yeah american car companies can't make a car worth anything everybody's buying japanese cars you remember uh back to the future the movie back to the future uh, when Marty goes back in time and uh, the docs the 1955 doc is looking at this thing so no wonder this thing crapped out it says made in
0: japan yeah that's and, right and, yeah yeah, and yeah.
1: Say, doc all the best stuff's made in japan now. yeah
0: and that's that 1980s cool. yeah. Yeah. yeah right around this so, time
1: all right so that so 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 that's what's going on and against that backdrop the hogan company's trying to make the edge. They knew they had a winner. They knew the design was sound, but they were having manufacturing problems. R and D and manufacturing were having, it was hard to do. It had never been done before. The biggest problem was tooling for the, for the, the cavity back.
0: Yeah. When uh, you've only done forge forever, yeah. you know, it's, it's a whole new animal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it. So that was, that was a, that was a real struggle to get that right. And they eventually did. They got it right and they were planning. Uh,
0: so everything's great. Right, <laughs> it Everything can only straight. go well. What we happens? Got this
1: thing, lick. We're looking to launch the Edge in in second quarter nineteen eighty eight. Everything's looking fantastic, but then we have the strike. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, the factory goes on strike. The factory right. that figured out how to cast this iron right. said, "No, we're not going to make it." Well, a little more to it than that. Yeah, a, go too into the it.
1: Co- Hogan had been unionized since the early 60s, and for the most part, they, they, there was there was uh, very little labor strife. They had you know some issues here and there, but nothing they never they they couldn't overcome. In early 1988, their, 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 the 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 contract or the agreement with the Steelworkers Union was coming to an end, and they had to start negotiating to come up with a new one. Remember, the company's up for sale at this point too. If we think about how Hogan was doing, they had that 2.5 million dollar loss in '85. 86, Austria turned that into a $2.5 million profit. 87, they had a $4 million profit. Things are going so well. Things are going well. The steel yep. workers are saying, okay, we did our part. You know, now let's, yeah.
0: you know. We'd you like know, let, to be compensated for we, helping you, you know, achieve
1: success. Exactly, which is which is ultimately reasonable. So they went to the bargaining table asking for a 10% pay increase. The Minstart team that was handling the negotiations basically got up and left. They made no counter offer. They said we're, we're we'll get back to you. They come back a few weeks later with their with their offer. It wasn't a counter proposal. It was a <laughs> yeah, it was it wasn't even a counter proposal. Yeah. Like, this is what we're this Here's is Here's the you're demand. Get. The Here demand the demand. You're not getting a 10% pay increase. You're not getting a 5% pay increase. You will take a 40% hourly wage decrease. Wow. And it's not negotiable.
0: 40%. Yeah, take it or leave it. Wow. So here they're thinking, you know, we're going to negotiate for a pay increase. It's for all intents and purposes seems to be a reasonable request. Obviously, you have potentially a Japanese company looking to acquire the company. So that's definitely in the the minds of the ownership. And they go to war, right? They take a warlord mentality and say 40% percent so that clearly does not go well.
1: right. Obviously, they had reached a deal with the Japanese buyer at this time, and they and the deal was, "Hey, we'll buy this contingent upon you settling this labor issue on our terms, basically your terms." Um, you know, where they trying to break the union? That was the, that was the theory. Uh, Minstar was prepared for this. Okay, they, they they had their ducks in a row, so to speak. So they had replacement workers all ready to go. And they had already written up, they had plans written up to relocate the company to either Southern California or Mexico, if they had to. Within, you know, within hours of the strike becoming official, they actually hired a private security firm, an armed private security firm to to uh, patrol the area with the unlikely name of Knuckles. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, again, if this, is movie, yeah. if this is a movie. This is a movie. You're private security named Knuckles.
0: <laughs> yeah, insane.
1: Right. Um, Austri uh, was getting uh, death threats and harassing phone calls. The VP of manufacturing, a guy named Doug, uh, uh, Doug Hendershot, was getting death threats to the point where Hendershot actually had to be driven to work each day in a bulletproof van with solid rubber tires.
0: It's crazy.
1: Yeah, and, and in his autobiography, Austri tells a great story about how he was at one of his son's baseball games. And he's watching the game, and there's this guy that no matter where Jerry goes, this guy's following him. And with all the death threats and everything, this guy's a stalker. So he's going, you know, he goes over here to get a hot dog. He, the guy's following him. He goes over here to the men's room. The guy's following him. Everywhere that goes, this guy's following him. So he's starting to panic Till until it turns out that this guy was a bodyguard that Knuckles assigned him. He didn't had. even know. He didn't know. He didn't even know. He didn't even know. So um, during the strike— as this strikes going on, the, the deal to sell Hogan was finalized and the, the buyer was a Japanese company called Cosmo World and they were sold for fifty three million dollars. This is all during the strike. But again, part of the deal was this has to be settled and it has to be settled on Minstar's terms. When you have that incentive as as management, you have the incentive to hang on. You can you can wait it out. The union Finally, had to break the union. Finally, you know, capitulated because they had to figure, you know, forty percent of something is better than hundred percent. Oh money.
0: gosh, it's terrible. So,
1: yeah. So, so, so they finalized the sale to Cosmo World, and we meet Cosmo World's owner, a gentleman named uh, Minoru Isitani.
0: So they accepted the forty percent pay cut.
1: Yeah. They oh, brutal. They, they, at that point, they just they, they caved. You know, brutal. you're going on, you're going on a month and no pay. It doesn't look like it's going to change. They're not coming to you.
0: Yeah, it's harsh. It's, it's,
1: a, it's, a, it's an old story.
0: So that escalated really quickly, right? They went from the best of times to the worst of times to everything's looking up. Now we're being acquired. You know, how did the acquisition go down?
1: Well, this was Texas. Okay. Given the times, given what was going on in the rest of the country with Economic Pro Harbor, it, it it can only imagine it didn't go well. And um, it... it, it Uh, Jerry tells about how um, Isatani's first visit to the factory, uh, the Cosmo World people instructed all of management and all the salaried workers uh, when they were to meet Isatani. They were to line up in a row to meet Isatani. And they were not to say a word, but as he walked by, they were to bow. These are Texans.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) These are Texans. Um, I can't imagine that one. That That probably did
0: not go over well.
1: Right. And that's that, that's the same time. That same visit was when Isatani f- uh, formally met and had lunch with Ben Hogan at Shady Oaks. And they're ha- and, you know, they're having lunch. And Hogan asks, you know, he asks an interpreter, does Mr. Isatani understand English? And when. Told that that Isitani did in fact understand English. Hogan looked at him and and the the quote's very famous. He says, "You know, you just bought the family jewels. Don't fuck it up." Blunt as usual. Very, very blunt. Very straightforward, Mister Hogan. Now, whether he, you can make a case that he did in fact <laughs> screw it up, but that's that's that that's the, what will unfold in the future. The strike has been settled, but the workers aren't happy, right? This is There's still a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment over the strike, over the 40% pay cut, and then, hey, we're Texas, but we're now owned by a Japanese company. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on that, that was shady. There was products, uh, machinery sabotage, deliberate slowdowns. All of this had the net effect of pushing back the launch of the edge.
0: So, and that was all internal, you think, I mean, yep. like the machine sabotage, it was just people, you think, just fed up and couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, we'll show you.
1: Yeah, that that's kind of the working theory. Gosh, yeah, that's crazy. That, 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 yeah, and unhappy workers, you know, unhappy, resentful workers. Yeah. And and, and and that's against the backdrop of just a few months prior, okay, before Minstar put them up for sale, before that was, you know, it's, uh, Minstar had them up for sale, but before anything with about the Japanese interest came out. Um Austrian management through a big family festival for the employees and, and Ben and Valerie were there and all the, all the kids were there, all the families were there. They had all kinds of activities and, you know, food and everything. And it was such a, Jerry describes it as, it was such a a wonderful day. Everything felt great. The workers were happy. Uh, They loved working for Hogan, you know, Hogan was there and it really revitalized him uh, to, 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 to be with his, to be with his workers and and at the factory and see his life's work really progressing. And then everything else happens to follow.
0: Oh, just got it. Right. Yep. Just got it. I hope you enjoyed part one of the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan golf company. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate the show and leave a comment. And if you love part one, just wait until we dive into the Japanese acquisition of the Ben Hogan Golf Company, because it's one of the craziest stories in all of golf history. A story nobody saw coming. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.